Life North of the 54th. I'm Garrett Brown. And I am Preston Brown. And today we're pleased to have with us Mr. Lawrence Hunt. So, Mr. Hunt, why don't you introduce yourself? What do you do? I grew up a long way from north of the 54th. I've lived in Kenora now for 32 years. Kenora's about halfway between Toronto and Grand Prairie, though. Yeah, that sounds about right. And of course, and it's, a, it's basically a straight geodesic line from here to British Columbia. Did you grow up in Kenora? I did not, no. I grew up in southwest Missouri, and there's a long story there. I only put the puzzle together gradually. Our family Bible was signed in Brighton, Ontario. So how did we end up in Springfield, Missouri, is the town I grew up in. Even my grandparents lived in Springfield. So the story goes, my my father's father, his mother died in childbirth, in Iowa. And the Hunt family had just moved down from Ontario. They decided to leave Canada and come to the United States. And they adopted my grandfather in Iowa and moved to Springfield, Missouri from there. The Hunt stayed there. My grandfather was a Walton by birth, and the Walton family moved to North Dakota. And North Dakota is not far from Kenora. So I have a cousin, Karen, in Grand Forks, who I'm in touch with. Yeah. So I'm in communication with her. There is a Hunt Road in Brighton, Ontario, and the Hunts who adopted my grandfather are the family that lived on Hunt Road in Brighton, Ontario. So there is a Canadian connection. I feel now that I'm the person in my family who reconnected us with Canada because we literally, apart from the family Bible, there was nothing else about Canada. What I've always said about growing up in Springfield, Missouri, is the sports you play are quite different. Uh, You play baseball six to eight months of the year, and then a little basketball in the fall. It does get cold, and when it turns cold, you play football. You keep playing football, it gets warm again. You play a little basketball for a while, and then baseball is the sport, right? And (laughs) we play baseball seven days a week for six to eight months a year. And, you know, I have such clear motor memories of playing baseball every day. School-wise, I attended public schools. And I think back now, I reflect, our teachers were excellent. It's just ridiculous how good the teachers were and how little they were paid. You know, what a good job they did of teaching for a very minimal, very basic pay. They lived a simple life, obviously. And I guess another thing I could say, I was raised by the World War II veterans generation, right? My father was in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, He rose to a rank of captain because, honestly, a lot of people got killed in the Battle of the Bulge, and promotion opportunities were many and various. And uh, he was a university graduate, so he started as a lieutenant, American style, rather, we would say lieutenant in Canada. Yeah. And he was promoted to captain during the Battle of the Bulge. So he had six weeks of very intense fighting, and the Battle of the Bulge pretty well ended the war. So he fought a very intense six weeks of battle. He described walking behind enemy lines. He actually walked through the German camps to do reconnaissance. Uh, He was in trenches. He threw hand grenades at the Germans. You know, all that stuff was going on. Uh, I'm not telling you my father's life, but that was certainly forming the kind of life (laughs) that I grew up with. Yeah. Recently, the people are talking about mid-century modern architecture. Have you heard much about that? No. Preston? Not. 
I don't think so. Yeah. It's a style. Obviously, you don't remember the space age. I was raised in the space age. The cars looked like rocket ships. <laughs> yeah. The, the, it was kind of the peak was 1959, where the Chevrolet and the Cadillac had these huge tail fins. But everything had big yep. tail fins on it. It was meant to be like a rocket. Well, our house was, the lamps in the house I grew up in looked like rocket nose cone. <laughs> the whole idea of the mid-century modern was the space age expressed in architecture. And my father designed our house. He designed the house I grew up in. Wow. And it was uh, 1950, the house was built. So he would have designed it 48, 49. It's a past the solar house. He actually designed it with full solar principles. The southern exposure was all glass, but there was an overhang on the roof so that in the summer there was shade, but in the winter the sun would shine in through the glass. And I remember as a child, and we had concrete floors. Nobody was rich in those days after World War II. And the sun would heat the concrete floor. And I remember my brother and I would always play on the concrete floor right by the window because it was the warm place. So that memory is very clear. I guess the other memory that comes from my childhood and what this has to do with anything, I'm not sure. But my father would not drive North American cars. He wouldn't drive Chevrolets with big fins on them. Yeah, he was all for the space age. But he only drove import cars. I drove a red Mercedes convertible when I was in high school. They were cheaper than Chevrolets back then. The import cars were inexpensive back in the 50s and 60s. One of his favorite cars was actually a Citroen 2CV. It's a little two-cylinder engine. The gear shift comes out of the dashboard. And the French used to drive them around in the desert because there were a lot of French colonies in Africa. Yep. And the 2CV was the car of choice for French colonialists. But it was also my father's favorite car. So he had Triumph, Porsche, Mercedes, a Saab, the Citroen. But this little Citroen 2CV, the mo it looked like it was made out of corrugated metal. <laughs> I mean, it was really basic. Tiny little car, absolutely tiny, with this little two-cylinder engine in it. And uh, my father was also a pilot. He actually applied for the Air Force at World War II. And uh, he was five feet five, too short. They wouldn't let him in. And he was also colorblind, which I am not. So guess what? If you don't get the Air Force, they send you to the infantry. But he learned to fly later, and he was always flying small planes uh, during my growing up years as well. Wow. I wish I had appreciated it more. A lot of times I just stay home and play games with my brother rather than go flying with my father. If I could redo that, I would certainly go flying more. So what led you to Canada? Actually, that came through my mother, and I haven't said anything about her. My mother was very literary. She's a literature major. I think she read a book a day. Wow. And yeah, and how many people do you know? Literally every day she was on a new book because she'd read them all the way through. She was spending hours a day just reading. And her closest family friend was the descendant of a fellow named Conrad Weiser from Pennsylvania. Conrad Weiser was the American who talked most to the Native people in uh, northeastern United States. Again, Pennsylvania, New York State, that area. He actually spent a winter living with the Mohawks when he was a child, and he learned the Iroquois language. He was the most important U.S. negotiator. All the treaties formed with the Iroquois Confederacy in the United States were done through Conrad Weiser. And... My mother's best friend was one of his great, 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 great grandchildren, basically. 
her brother was in Toronto. Like he was the head of the Department of Applied Psychology at Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, University of Toronto. His name John Dweiser. He's no longer living. And he invited me to come up and live with him, look for a job. I ended up working in a box factory. So uh, December 1971, I moved to Toronto. For about six months, I moved back to Missouri in 1980, I think it was. But apart from that, I've lived only in Canada since 1971. Uh, and I'm now a Canadian citizen as well. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So I, I did my doctorate. You can call me Dr. Randa if you want to. They uh, Actually, one of my professors, he joked with me he said, when I finished the degree, he said, when you introduce your new people, tell them my friends just call me doctor. <laughs> and uh, Gary, you can do the same thing when you get your doctoral degree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My friends just call me doctor. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. So you moved to Toronto looking for work and you ended up going to school and going all the way through to a doctorate. Well, the going to school was the plan. He was the head of the Department of Applied Psychology. Okay. So honestly, the reason I studied psychology, I had psychology was one of the areas I studied as an undergraduate. I did psychology, religion, biology, and a bit of biochemistry. It's mainly what I did as an undergraduate. Yeah. So I could have gotten into any of those fields. Say he'd been the head of the Department of Molecular Biology, I'd be a molecular biologist today. Yeah. So I'd say John Weiser. My mother's family friend had a very big influence on me. And so, and I, I was studying psychology as an undergraduate, so it wasn't illogical to go into a psychology program. But it's not like I was destined to be a psychologist, not at all. Yeah. Uh, my father was a lawyer, and he always said his greatest regret was studying law. He wished he had studied physics. <laughs> and the question, where did my interest in physics come from? Yeah. My father used to hand me physics books to read as a kid. Wow. I read George Gamow and Fred Hoyle and, you know, the popular science writers of the day. Started reading Scientific American magazine at age eight. Did you have interest in science fiction as well? Absolutely, yeah. Were you reading Isaac Asimov as he was writing stuff out? My father actually read the Foundation books, passed them on to me, got me to read Asimov. My favorite, though, once I started making my own choices, was Heinlein. Heinlein wrote eight novels for the Boy Scouts. He wrote one a year for eight years, I guess. And to this day, I will say, I, I think they're the best science fiction books ever. They're not dystopias. You know, yeah. the future just carries on. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's just the future. And lots of new technologies are in it. Robots and time travel and spaceships and, you know, Mars colonies and Venus colonies and Ganymede colonies. And, you know, there's a colony everywhere you can imagine. They had no idea. <laughs> I mean, Heinlein imagined there could be jungle life on the surface of Venus. Nobody knew. Oh, that's true. Back in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Right? It wasn't known. Even Mars, yep. right? The life on Mars. Sure. Yeah. All the books were about finding the life forms on Mars, which were intelligent or more intelligent than humans. And on it went. Yeah, thanks for sure. Yeah, so, so I mainly read science fiction as a kid, even up into my teenage years. So I really want to ask what led you to the peace country, like coming from, yeah, southern Missouri and, and Toronto. Like, how did, how did you end up in the peace country for, for that period of time? Yeah, well, I've lived in every corner of North America, so I need to make that clear as well. Just to give you a brief chronology. Yeah. So I was actually born in Michigan. My father was studying law at the University of Michigan. But I was less than a year old when we moved to Springfield, Missouri. Stay there through age 18. 
Then I went to New College of Florida. It was a very experimental college. We, did, we didn't have grades and we had lots of tutorials and the teacher influenced me most with Dr. John Culbertson is the one who got me started in exercise and molecular biology and so on. I did an independent study project on muscle physiology, muscle structure and function, actin and myosin and so on. And I did three years of physics in university as well. Uh, actually, high school and university, I did three years of physics. So, and math through calculus, I got that far, but I, there's lots of statistics in psychology, so I've done that, but not the calculus part, really. Yeah. And I used to go out to California with my best friend for summers. My last two summers in high school were spent in California. So I traveled a lot by the time I showed up in Toronto. But I didn't stay in Toronto long. I mean, basically, I finished university in Toronto 1975. I moved out to Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. I think I was the first doctoral psychologist working in a hospital in Newfoundland in 1975. I mean, this was honestly, talk about the old days, right? It was prehistoric. <laughs> uh, and I love Newfoundland. Newfoundland's a great place to live. I love the people and the culture out there. I moved back to, I was in Toronto, 80 to 83. And then in 1983, I bought a 200-year-old log cabin on 30 acres north of Kingston, Ontario. Not all that far from Brighton, you know, where the Hunt family were from originally. Yeah. And I was living there, but I was underemployed. And Kingston has more PhDs per capita than any city in Canada, except maybe possibly Victoria might be a competitor. <laughs> so having a PhD in Kingston, Ontario is like you graduated from kindergarten. It's nothing, right? <laughs> it's without value. <laughs> It was very hard to find work in Kingston. Honestly, I went to the Canada Employment Center. They had microfiche back in those days. And Grand Prairie School District had a job listed. So I applied for it and went out for an interview. And I just, I love Grand Prairie from the start. My interview would have been in the spring of 1985. So then I went back in September to start. I worked out at Christopher Park School in Grand Prairie for a year. Yep. We had a team of, you know, specialists, OTs, physiotherapists, speech and language, etc. Yeah. And we traveled, uh, you know, we traveled as far north as Fort Vermilion. Wow. High Prairie was a regular stop and so on. But then they were developing a new rehabilitation services program at Grand Prairie Regional College. So I applied for that and they hired me. <laughs> I'd never been a college teacher before. My father used to teach part-time and everybody just raved over what a great teacher he was. And I always say my father was many times smarter than I am. He was just really a polymath. And he was teaching mostly history, political science, and then he would teach real estate law to realtors. So I thought, surely I've inherited my father's ability to teach. I Honestly, I wasn't a very good teacher. <laughs> uh, I did do a couple more years college. I ended up teaching two years in Grand Prairie. I taught two years college at College in New Caledonia in Prince George. It kept me in the same area. And while I was in Prince George, 90 to 92, I was in touch with my Grand Prairie friend. So I was in Grand Prairie, 85 to 88, moved back to Toronto for a couple of years, then moved to Prince George. And then I moved to Kenora in 92, May of 92. I've been here ever since. But the years in Grand Prairie, I th really thought about this because you asked me, you know, to consider that question. How was I affected by my time in Grand Prairie? Yeah. I became a happy person in Grand Prairie. I think that's probably the most profound aspect to it. 
the culture of Grand Prairie is cooperative. It's the old Canadian cooperative farming and ranching tradition, beekeeping, you name it, right? Like all the different things that people do in the peace country. And I developed, while I was working in the school, the janitor of the school was actually a homesteader. And I used to visit his place on the weekends. He had other friends who were homesteading, and he took me out to their places. And I became very good friends with a group of people living in Elmworth, the southwestern Beaverland. Yeah. Yep. So I was spending a lot of my weekends out. Bruce and his wife, where were they live? Sexsmith? Yeah, that's a town just north of Grand Prairie. Yeah, they would have been somewhere in the bush north and west of Sexsmith. And then, of course, there's a lot further to Elmworth. Have you ever been to Elmworth? It's in the middle of nowhere. I have been to Elmworth. Drove, driven through a couple of times. Yeah, I come on the way to where? On the way to where? They got the local school and the curling rink, and I think a yeah. community hall. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, Hinton Trail Hall is there, let us not forget. Yeah, I would say Grand Prairie is where I discovered community. It's where I discovered people truly caring for and supporting each other, including people they don't know. People having a very open and supportive attitude. It was so easy to move to Grand Prairie and become part of the community. They're just ready to snap new people up. Yep, they are. And I felt very included. And uh, many of my best friends are still in Grand Prairie to this day. Uh, I travel the Unger family. They're they're up in the, uh, they're not, what's that other town? Just north of Grand Prairie on the way to Sexman. It's bigger now. Claremont. Claremont, yeah, they live in Claremont now. But I've gone to Disneyland with them. I've traveled in California and Florida with them. We're very close friends to this day. That's wonderful. The other person who had a very big influence on me, Rick Carlson, was the staff worker with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship back at that time. And guess who introduced me to Rick Carlson? Gene McKinnon. Or Jeannie yeah, introduced me. Yeah. And of course, she and Jerry were still living at that time. And, you know, the kids were young to small, Ian being the oldest. It was kind of this diffident teenager, I guess you could say it like that. <laughs> and Laura and Heather, I would describe them both. They were kind of modest personalities. Anyway, I volunteered to lead the youth group at the church. So Ian, Laura, and Heather was a little young, but she had a little involvement in it. But the church ministry evolved into, honestly, kind of a street ministry. Some of the kids, they were getting into fights. You know, I would actually meet them at the pool hall after midnight, and somebody would be getting kicked and stomped outside while I was meeting the kids. One of the kids in the youth group, his dad was a professional criminal, and he was involved with a criminal gang in Edmonton. He was running stolen goods back and forth to Edmonton. We were selling chocolate bars for fundraising, soon as he got a box of chocolate bars, he just ate them all and gave them to his friends. No, he didn't sell any of them or raise any funds for our youth group. But the other kids were just so great about it. We sold hundreds and hundreds of chocolate bars did really well. So for Ian and Laura and Heather going back, the youth group, and again, it wasn't planned. You know, I mean, you know, just things happen as they happen. Yeah. The kids who came into the group were kind of a rough bunch. Probably at least three of them have had criminal charges against them at different times, I can think of. But they were attracted to our group, and they weren't doing anything criminal when they were with us. <laughs> and I had a little place on, uh, actually, it wasn't far from Crystal Park School, but I was just west 
of the main road through town. I, I wasn't very far south of Crystal Park School. It was a little old Depression-era shack that had no foundation. It was literally decaying into the ground. And I was renting it from one of the teachers at Crystal Park School and had a great big lilac bush in front of it, which was really beautiful and smelled really nice in the spring. Yeah. And anyway, so I would go to work. And by the time I was teaching at the college, literally every day I'd come home from work at the college and there were like three to eight kids at my door. And it was like that from 86 to 88, my last two years in Grand Prairie. So Rick Aronson, uh, who I met through Jenny, and I'll tell you a little more of that story in a minute. But Rick was my inspiration. He gave me ideas about, you know, how to engage the group, what kind of activities to do with them, how to get them talking about really serious stuff, including the quasi-criminals. And the most criminal kid in the group, by the way, is still living in Grand Prairie, and he's gone straight. He's an honest man. He's, he's a, works as a taxi driver today. Okay, back to Jeannie McKinnon. So I knew her very well. I was attending Christ Church Anglican every Sunday, as was Jeannie. Remember I met, mentioned to you before, Jeannie, she falls into a class of people that I recognize because my mother was one of those people. I call them invisible people. Uh, but in, but that's only one. The first word, the second word is influencer. They're people who make things happen, but nobody sees them do it. Nobody writes a biography about them. You know, very modest, very quiet people who don't like to draw attention to themselves. But there wasn't a Sunday I didn't talk to Jeannie at church every single Sunday. And she was interested in me and what I was doing and the kids and all the rest. And even when the youth group kind of took a couple of hard turns away from the direction that was really something that Laura and Ian wanted to be a part of. Uh, she was still very supportive of the group as well, very supportive. And the pastor, Isaac and Sheila Graham, very supportive as well. And I'm sure Jeannie was always putting a good word for us in the background. You know, she's that kind of person. She really is. And I remember not just seeing her at church, but my work would take me to Harry Balfour School too, and not just when I was working out at Crystal Park. When I was at the college, we were training students in rehabilitation services. So we had students placed at Harry Balfour. So anytime I was at Harry Balfour, I was always talking to Jeannie. I remember it was at Harry Balfour that she gave me Rick Erlinson's phone number. So I was literally over at the school, some work-related thing, and she was behind the desk there running the whole school, no doubt, yep. and probably knew more than the principal about what was going on. <laughs> And she told me about Rick. And Rick was just this hugely gifted person. Do you know Rick Erlinson? I don't know if you know him or not. He doesn't live in Grand Prairie anymore. I have not heard of him before. No, I don't think so. No, yeah. He stayed in Grand Prairie for a while. Rick was fairly, he was just out of university. He was a recent university graduate, so younger than I am. And he applied for a teaching job in the business faculty at the college and got hired. I never asked him why he did his university degree in probably business administration. So he taught business administration several years in Grand Prairie. And then he actually got hired to be the provincial coordinator for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He certainly had the talent to do it and moved to Calgary. One of the Mennonite families that were very involved with the Christian Fellowship as well had a beautiful kind of small ranch home just across the river when you drive east. You know, you go down to that big bowl and come back up. Probably across the Smoky River. Yeah, it's on the Smoky River, right you are. 
Yeah, just east of the Smoky River, but all the way up on top. And there's a big log cabin on the left, just as you're coming up out of the river. He was a teacher with the Grand Prix School Board. They let him go for some reason. He had to move to Peace River, and they had to sell the house. They built it themselves and their Mennonite friends, kind of custom built. So the Erlinsons lived in that log home there. Again, if you don't know it, keep your eyes open. You'll see it there. And as you know, going down and getting up out of those uh, northern Alberta rivers, it takes a while. Those are deep valleys. They're wide, deep valleys. <laughs> yep. So all the time I was living in Grand Prairie, Jeannie's always quietly talking to me, interested in me, wanting to know what's up, making little suggestions. Well, why are you doing this? Why don't you do that? And it's, you know, hugely influential person, right? And just, you know, she'll never be mayor. She'll never be on the city council, right? But such a powerful person. So I'd say she's honestly one of my most important friends from Grand Prairie. So when I discovered, it was only a few years ago I discovered Jeannie on Facebook. Well, Facebook was a gradual thing. We were all kind of learning it and discovering it. Yeah. And somehow Jeannie and Rick stayed close friends, by the way. So she could have told you all kinds of stories about Rick. Rick actually still posts photography. If you look up Rick Erland's photography, uh, you'll find it on the internet. You'll find it on Facebook. Uh, his work is all over the place. And his photography includes some of his youth work as well, work with kids. So I will say the move towards the youth group, I was spent was visiting my homesteader friends out around Elmworth less. When did I ever get a chance to go to Elmworth? I get home and I've got a bunch of kids. Feeding, you know, Coca-Cola and potato chips and hot dogs and <laughs> just horrible junk food. I feel terribly about it now, but that's what we were living on back in those days. And on weekends, we do things. And Rick would be the organizer of a lot of this. Uh, we do trail rides. Okay. There would be weekend trail rides that Rick would organize, and the kids in the group all learned to ride horses. Yeah. But we were doing things like the uh, Seminole Valley Ranch. Have you ever heard of that or been down there? I don't even know if it's there anymore. It's on the Seminole River. It's east of Grand Prairie. Yeah, I've been hunting around the Seminole, but it's been a very long time since I've been in the area. There you go. Yes, it's been a long time for me as well. Well, Seminole Valley ought to be a clue right away. It's a very bad place to build a ranch because the river flooded all the time. <laughs> so the river flooded, and they wanted to support Rick's youth ministry. So there's this beautiful little log cabin that they had built, a brand new log cabin, and the water filled the first floor two-thirds full. Oh, man. From the That's how bad the floods were. So I took the Christchurch youth group out for a weekend at the Seminole Valley Ranch, and we scrubbed down and cleaned out that whole mud-covered cabin and got it working again. And then, you know what, the next year they had another flood. And I don't know, to my knowledge, it wasn't repaired after the second flood. It was just the wrong place to have a ranch. Yeah. But there must be a lot of those stories from the Peace River, too, is, you know, the, those North Country rivers can really flood and they can create quite a disaster. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Uh, I've seen a couple of times uh, the Wapiti River get really high from lots of rain and um, snow runoff, especially if you get lots of rain in the spring that melts snow quickly. Yes. And you see the water so high underneath the bridge, you just think, like, where did all that water come from? Yeah, those rivers can really fill pretty quickly because there's a lot of drainage into those big rivers. I, a striking thing about the Peace Country compared to Kenora is that there are no rocks in the Peace Country. It's gumbo-like. 
you know, you could drown in the gumbo like quicksand and never come up again. You know, there's a lot of gumbo. <laughs> I guess they just wash the gumbo away and, you know, that's how you clean things up. It's pretty, the gumbo is pretty messy stuff. So back to the question of how I was influenced by living in Grand Prix. Yeah, that would be great if you would. Yes. Clearly, you can see that Jeannie was, was a very important influence in my life. So I would say I consider myself an introvert. I'm definitely an introvert. You know, I could sit home for two weeks and never talk to anybody and not notice it. It wouldn't bother me. And I spend a lot of time by myself in my current life in Kenora. I always say that Northwest Ontario, they used to call it the frontier spirit. It's in very individualistic. The culture of mining and logging is an individualistic culture. The culture of ranching and farming, especially in the north, Peace Country, Alberta, very different than, say, Montana. You know, watch Yellowstone on TV. You know, their culture is not like the Peace River country. It's very different. So uh, what I learned from living three years in the Peace Country, I was not an introvert at all for three years. I didn't get a chance to be. It's impossible <laughs> to be an introvert in, in the peace country. You can say it like that. People are so supportive and so welcoming and so inclusive that you just can't go off and isolate yourself. You know, it's hard to do. I, it's very easy to isolate myself in Kenora. People just leave you alone, but not in Grand Prairie. Yeah. And I thought when I went to Prince George, you know, I was there for two years, 90 to 92. I thought Prince George would be like Grand Prairie. It's not. It's again, it's a mining and forestry town, right? It's they're all individualists in Prince George. So again, Prince George, not maybe five hours drive from Grand Prairie, but it's a very, very different culture. Not the same at all. So basically, Grand Prairie washed the introvert out of me and taught me how to be an extrovert, I guess. Somebody should do a psychological test. They test people for introversion, extroversion, and Grand Prairie. <laughs> Everybody would be an extrovert in the whole city. There wouldn't be any introverts anywhere. You know, so the culture is so powerful that way. The other thing, this isn't really a cultural point, but I remember whenever I would leave Grand Prairie, I would always, you know, I still had my cabin in Kingston. I used to actually drive back to Kingston in the summers. Because my jobs always had long summer breaks. Yeah. I read somewhere that the Peace Country has more wildflowers than any place else on earth. Whenever I was driving back to the Peace Country, it's just the smell of flowers blooming in the air is just, it's a heavy blanket over the entire Peace Country. It smells good up there. In my biology class in college, we did the rat dissection, and the rat's brain is all olfactory lobes. That's all they have in their brain is olfactory lobes, olfactory clues. But our olfactory lobe very important for memory and emotion. And my emotions about Grand Prairie are very much as well. And also that lilac bush I had in my little lot there, you know, right in Grand Prairie as well. So the flower smells. Yeah. There's a lot of folks who have lilac bushes up in the Peace Country. And it's also one of the world's largest... Uh, honey producing areas so lots of you know lots of beekeepers up there too yes and i knew lots of people beekeeping and they would give me honey and so on yeah it's a quick aside lawrence i think i was really spoiled by the honey in the peace country <laughs> yes yes um and honey that we had moving anywhere else my wife tells me often that i'm a honey snob <laughs> i like the really like creamy honey with a nice foam on top you got to be able to s slice it with the knife and cut it like like a piece of cake like that's the kind of honey yes and smells like flowers it does yeah yeah now now i'm spoiled and <laughs> yeah it's wonderful
I've actually liked every place I've lived. Um, I was at times of not liking Toronto, but other times I like Toronto quite well too. Kingston, having my redundant PhD in Kingston was a bit of a, you know, it was, it was <laughs> it, any egotism I had got sucked out of me in Kingston. That's for sure. I loved Newfoundland. It was wonderful living out there. Going to college in Florida was quite an adventure. You know, I had such a wonderful uh, teacher there. I'd fix up old bikes. I'd take old wrecked bikes, take several different bikes and put a new bike together from the pieces and ride out to the beach on the bicycle. And my professor would go there with me in Florida. So I've had a lot of places I lived I really enjoyed. I, I'd say no regrets about that. But no place has touched me as deeply in my heart and spirit as the bees country. It's just no place else like it. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for sharing that. I think a lot of folks that we've talked to on, on this podcast either grew up in the peace country like us or right. spent a great deal of time in the peace country. But it's really great to hear that it had such a outsized influence on, on your life coming and just passing through, through briefly. Yeah, I was just three years living there. I forgot to mention, I did go back for the summer camps into the 2000s. Okay. So I was back. I was still coming. And I didn't mention that at all. We do trail riding. We go to the peaks of the Rocky Mountains. Back around uh, around Two Lakes and Kakwa, that area. Yep, yep. And Preston Manning came out with us one day. There's literally one day but Preston <laughs> Manning came out and spent a day with his camping. So I stayed connected. I think my last trip to the Peace Country was 2005. So it is almost 20 years now. It's getting to be a long time. Yeah, thank you for sharing. For sure. Yeah, that's everything I had to share with you. No, it's it's wonderful. Like we really appreciate it. We're, we're grateful for the time you spent with us and the the stories you've shared. We also appreciate the little bit that you shared with your father and and your your ancestry. It's I think it's a really important part to understand sort of like where we come from, but also that the places we live really have an impact on us, even if it's not formative. Yeah, I do. You know, the Bible talks about things being passed on for three generations through family. And three generations ago in my family, they were living in Canada, yeah. The my adoptive great-grandparent. I think there's a part of, literally, I truly believe there's a part of me that had to come to Canada to come home. I don't know how else to explain it. Yep, I think there's a, there's always things that influence, and especially people we know and people that are close to us, specifically family yes. and then close friends. And I must say that knowing Jeannie McKinnon, I don't think anybody could be an introvert if you knew Jean McKinnon. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. She's she such a deep person. Like the well of her spirit just went down infinitely. You know, I mean, just yeah. unending so much there. Yeah, you hear her talk about, especially spending so much time as a secretary in Harry Potter. Yes. The connection that she had to so many children afterwards and the story she would tell about folks coming up afterwards and saying, ah, oh, Jeannie, like it's been 10 years, 15 years. I remember you so well. And she had space for everyone. There wasn't any place that she lived her life that she didn't know absolutely everything that was going on. She asked a lot of questions. She's just plain interested. Never focused on herself. When I talked with Jeannie, the focus was always about me. And she made it that way, you know. A pretty amazing person. We're really grateful to you, Lawrence, for spending time with us, for sharing with us, especially for sharing some memories of Jeannie with us. We know that she's passed on recently, so we really appreciate those additional memories. So thank you. 
Yeah, and wonderful to be able to share something in common like Jeannie. Yeah. So thank you to all those who listen. If you want to write in a story for us to share or reach out to us or provide us feedback, you can email us at lifenorthofthe54th at gmail.com or you can go to our website at peacecountrylife.ca slash feedback. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. Hunt, for joining us. And thanks for the conversations. Yes. I look forward to talking to you again about some more Penrose. Yeah, we'll talk physics again. We'll find a date for it. Take care. Okay, nice to meet you, Preston. Yes, thank you. Okay, bye-bye.